What's up, friends? This is Stephen Brogan Cortez. Welcome to the Why the F Not podcast. This is episode 56. And today, I do not have another friend from college coming in. I have a complete stranger who I've never met before, Mr. Joe McLean Jr., also known as the artist Joe Mack. This was a gentleman who I met at a fundraising event, uh, unknown artist's fundraising event, uh, a poet who I got to, a chance to listen to while I was off stage getting ready to come out uh, after him, dude, nerve-wracking. But he blew me away with his words, and I'm really, really thankful to have him on as a guest for today's episode. Uh, I I, I sit back, relax, enjoy the show. (laughs) Why the have not fun, guys? Boop-a-dee-boop-a-dee-boo. We can know each other. Uh, all right, let's see. Everything's all set up. Uh, why the F not podcast today? I got a, I got a special guest, not a friend from college, surprisingly enough. Someone who I met at, uh, I met him at a, uh, at a, at a fundraiser for, uh, it was called the Unseen Artist, uh, fundraiser, right? The, 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 the talent show of sorts with, uh, all sorts of artists from singer songwriters. There were a lot of actors, right? And then there was this guy, a poet doing spoken word this guy I was waiting backstage listening to this guy just just lay out all these words i was dude i was back he, he doesn't know about this but i was backstage just like taking deep breaths trying to be just trying to swallow just to like ingest what he's like putting out you know what i mean uh but uh, i have uh, a very a very special special guest today uh joe mclean jr also known as the artist joe mac welcome joe uh, i'm really happy you're here man how you doing man I'm doing great, man. How you doing? Dude, I'm good. I'm good. Not going to lie, because you're not a friend from college, I was a little nervous about this conversation. You're like a stranger. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's cool, man. Hey, I mean, you only get comfortable when you get uncomfortable first. Ooh, that's very true, man. Some people are scared to be uncomfortable. You know what I mean? I don't know why. I even tell my girlfriend, I'm like, babe, like, don't be afraid to make me uncomfortable. Make me uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, I'll let you know if it's too much for me, but like, Say something that little yeah. challenges me. Challenge me. You know what I mean? Hey, so uh, Joe, let's get the let's get the ball rolling, man. So you you're a poet, a spoken word artist. Uh, where did this all begin for you, man? Where did uh, when did pen come to paper, if you will? Pen came to paper the year two thousand one. Um, I was a junior at East Chicago Central High School in East Chicago, Indiana. And I had an English lit teacher named Miss Brenda Joshua. She kept me out the class one day and she was like, You can write. I said, Okay, thank you. And she was like, You better write extra time. And I'm thinking, Okay, is this the extra credit? You know, she was like, No, you're gonna write it for me. And so when you're fifteen, sixteen years old, you're obviously upset, like, why am I writing stuff for the teacher? But it came to a point that the more I wrote, the better I got, the better I got, the more I enjoyed it. And then from there we delved into poetry, and she saw that I had some good poetic skills. And one day, she told me to put my poems in the paper, playing on the football team, running track, playing basketball. I told her, Joshua, you're not about to give me clown by my boy. And she said the one statement that changed my life. She said, she said, women like words. If you put your poems in the paper, you might get girls. And I said, well, this looks to us for. And <laughs> you can say that's when I first started publishing my poetry, and you know that. <laughs> now it's taken off. So um, you got to credit her. She she did some reverse psychology, and twenty years later, it's still working. 
Dude, she motivated you. She got she used the right motivation for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where'd you where'd you grow up, Joe? I grew up in East Chicago, Indiana. It's um uh, literally we're on the Illinois Indiana border. I can I can walk to Chicago from some parts of my city. So, you know, we grew up basically on both sides. Uh, it was kinda like a mini version of Chicago, you know, rough rugged. But, you know, you just made the best of it. I had fun. Had two hardworking parents working in steel mill. My dad died rest his soul. He deceased um, four years ago. But uh, life was fun. Had a couple sisters, a brother. I was the youngest of six. So, you know, being the baby of the bunch, I was most irritating, the most energetic, <laughs> the most artistic, all that. So uh, it was fun growing up in Chicago. I loved every minute of it. You were the baby of the family, dude? Yeah, I'm the baby of the family. Of six of us, I'm the baby. Six out of six kids, you're the baby. Yeah. Damn. So you gotta be, you gotta fight for your word to be heard in the household. Then I bet. Well, I grew up. Um, my dad. So here's the story. My dad ended up marrying my mom. You know, all my other brothers and sisters, outside of my sister Keisha, we all had different mothers. But um, so. Four of us was in the state of Indiana, so I was tight-knit with them. And, you know, having my two sisters there, you know, they, they tried their best to bully me, you know. They got away with picking on me at times. But it was still fun, you know. Baby at a bunch, I was still spoiled, got what I wanted. You know, I knew how to manipulate my mom and dad at times. So it was cool. Yeah, I know what that's like, man. My, I have, I, I'm the oldest of, shoot, is it six? Hold up. Me, Gabby, Mauricio, John, <laughs> Nena. Shit. Yeah, me too. Six. I'm I'm the oldest. Uh, I'm the eldest of six, uh, and uh, and same thing. Like, well, you said you said different mothers with your siblings. Yeah, we have different yeah. fathers. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. My mom was the type of lady who like like I remember with uh, my the second eldest with with my second eldest sister. She uh, her father was like there was like some some drama or something about. About like he he had a wife or something in El Salvador or some relationship that he wasn't like cutting bonds with, you know, like he had a kid over there. My mom knew and stuff. So, that, you know, he was like, hey, you're taking care of your kid. That's respectable. You know, you can't divorce your wife in El Salvador because it's a little bit more complicated. I get it. But when it came down to yeah. him, my mom was like, yo, are you going to be with me or not? And he was wishy-washy. And she was like, you know what? All that matters are my kids. You can leave. You You can leave, my dude. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day with my siblings, it doesn't, I don't know if like, we, we all have different last names for me and my siblings, but like, that doesn't really, I don't know, maybe you can relate to this. It doesn't really mean anything less when it comes to our bond as uh, brothers and sisters. Well, I know, yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't decrease our bond. You know, three of, three out of all six, me, uh, me, my sister, Keisha, and Michelle, we have all the same last name, McLean, you know, other three siblings, different last names, but you know, um, it's still all love, you know. We're still brothers and sisters at the end of the day. We're still family. So, are any of them artists as well? Uh, no, I'm pretty much the artistic one out the bunch. I will say my brother Eric. He is, um, I guess you call it a master barber. So he's still back home. Uh, he runs conventions through the state of Indiana. He's real great at what he does. So I say, yeah, we're pretty much the artists of the family. Me on the stage and him with the Clippers. Because every time I go home, I tell them, you got to cut my hair because I ain't going to nobody else. I don't trust nobody else going home. 
Dude, that's lucky. That's lucky right there. Finding a good barber, that's tricky, man. And when it's family, oh, that's money. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> so, I mean, so what was it like in, in your household, like six siblings and whatnot? And you're like, you're the youngest and you're like, yo, I want to be a poet. Like at 16, you're like, I want to, like, was it, was it like full-fledged ambition from you? Like once that teacher like lit that, once you watered that seed, if you will, was it just gas and go? It was, it didn't become gas and go. She told, until she told me to write a short story for the class. It was like a 15 page paper. She was like, write me a 15 page story and pass it around class. And I was like, I don't really want to do this, but okay, I like you. You're my favorite teacher. And I did it. And the class was like, they were laughing. And to me, it was the stupidest story ever, but <laughs> they loved it. And I was just like, you know what? Maybe she's right. And I need to shut up and keep writing. So, that's when the spark took off, really, when the class started joining it. And I just credit her for everything that's happened over the last 20. I'm making an individual world poetry slam in 2019, finishing top 25 in the world, being a two-time champion in the Inland Empire, touring all over the country. I'll actually be in Austin, Texas on August 19th and 20th in a huge showcase. And everybody who follows art, you know, Austin, Texas is a huge art maker, so... Um, Idaho for Big Slam in October, so I really can't complain. She's the one who got that spark started. So on this podcast, it's Brenda Joshua. I thank you and I love you. What was her name again? Linda Johnson. Brenda. Brenda Johnson. Brenda. I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Brenda Joshua. Brenda Joshua. Forget my teacher's own name. Dude, Brenda Joshua. Shout out, man. Dude, I heard something about like teachers. Ugh, it's a TikTok that made me really sad. Not gonna lie, but they were talking about how like. Teachers may slowly like the, 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 the job, the career of a teacher, the profession that is a teacher is going to dwindle down to just another gig job. That's what they're pushing it to. And, and it's sad because I had a conversation about that on Facebook yesterday with they're talking about getting military veterans to replace teachers in Florida. And, you know, we some of us, not all of us, some of us do go through the instructor course. We get our master training specialist certification. But it's sad on the other end that. People who went to college, got the degree, then studied under teachers, educators, and professors. They're not paying them the big bucks to live. And all this inflation, like, you have to pay people a comfortable and livable wage. And nobody's going to sit there. I don't care how much passion you have. So nobody's going to sit there for crows and, you know, trying to live paycheck to paycheck. So it's just real bad right now because teachers and educators are some of the most important people we have in society like i was saying without an educator i would be where i'm at today so i definitely vouch for them. it's a sad state we in, and i just i just hope that one day and i hope it's sooner than later that they start getting their work paid to them and you know people start to appreciate them for what they really do oh my god say it again man yeah it's sad it's sad because a teacher changed my life everyone I, I bet everyone can at least say a teacher saved my life I, like maybe some some of those people that that you know ended up you know down the wrong path and you know aren't here with us anymore who knows maybe a good teacher could have saved their life maybe not who knows but you know the teachers are out there to, you know they're they're not just teaching us math and and literature or whatnot I remember, I remember once there was a teacher, Miss Sergeant, shout out Miss Sergeant. I was going through my own personal shit, you know, during senior year of high school, just, you know, just stuff, you know, self-worth and whatnot. And she sat with me while I cried and shit. Like, that's not her job. That's not what she signed up for, but that, that's what she chose to do. Yeah. 
I don't know. It, and it's, I remember uh, my seventh grade teacher, Mr. Watson, he was really the first one to say something meaningful. I'll never forget, it was this girl named Takara. She got into an argument, he kicked her out the class. And he was writing her, he was writing her up on report, you know. And he looked at everybody, he said, I want you to look at this pen. This pen is more dangerous than any gun. Now, growing up in East Chicago, when you hear as a youngster, you're like, bro, we, we dealing with gunshots every day. What do you mean it's more dangerous than a gun? Then you get older and realize a pen can sign your life away to prison. A pen is the signature to get a job. A pen is the signature to get your child into college and everything. So looking back at it, like, it peaked, like man, that was the most, one of the most impactful things I was taught as a kid. And, you know, going back to your situation, like, like, people really need to appreciate teachers because if they all different, I guarantee, and as somebody who facilitated 18 to 40-year-olds, being in front of a classroom is not easy at all. It's not easy. So they definitely need to get educated. That's probably why they're here. And I didn't know about that whole, what you just mentioned about veterans in Florida being, being, uh, they're going to use veterans as teachers for, to like, cause they yeah, they're offering, please, please. They're offering veterans. Yeah. They offer veterans the job. And like I said, it's a, it's a good and a bad side to it because not all veterans go through your instructor course. In the Navy, they call it MTS, the Master Training Specialist. In the Army, it's called AIC. Different branches have different realms, but when you get your certified instructor, you go through, you go through understudy, you go through your actual quizzes, your boards, you get boarded by college professors, you know, and we're a government entity. We're getting graded by college professors to see if you're even can you handle classroom pressure? So just to throw anybody in there, it, it's not going to be a good idea because it's so much that goes into teaching that people just don't realize. Like hearing that's a little, it's interesting to hear that, that that's what they're choosing to do. Like that's the offering they have for veterans. Like we have this to help you out. You can be a teacher. Because I'm hearing like John Stewart uh, like, uh, he's angry right now. Like they didn't, didn't the government just pass or not pass something to help veterans? Like they're, they're not doing anything to support veterans. Yeah, it's, it, it's bad. And shout out to John Stewart. He, he vouches for us. It's great. You know, I would also say we're underpaid too. Mm-hmm. You know, people look at the misconception is you get free medical, free dental, cut that we put into it. And we see it on our, when we get our every two week check, when you see your sheet, it says, it's taking out for medical, this taking out for dental. We pay into it. We don't get it for free. I'll give you a perfect example. I had heart surgery in 2010. The government sent me a bill three days later showing what they paid and what I owe. Jeez. So just for everybody out, everybody out there listening, our medical isn't all free. A lot of it is covered, but we do put into it. And sometimes, i.e., when people have babies, they do have to pay a little something. So don't just think we just getting everything for free because that is totally false. And was I mean, that used to be the biggest selling point to join the, any armed forces, right? Like you would join because maybe you don't have much, right? And you want to build something. So you're like, you know, Uncle Sam will provide me with health, you know, medical, dental, all that good stuff. But not even that. And then post, you know, your career in the armed forces, it's like, bye, thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You got to fight for your VA benefits. You got to fight for your college benefits. It, it, it's a whirlwind. And as much as I enjoyed it, I'm glad that I'm retired and I don't have to deal with it because it's so much unnecessary crap that goes on in the military. Like, if people saw the ins and outs of the military, they would not go up to people and say, thank you for your service. What you're doing is so honorable. It is a, excuse my French, it is a lot of bullshit people that wear a uniform every day. For every one person, you got three shit bags. And that's as blunt as I can put it. Ain't that the truth about anywhere you go to? Even with teachers in schools, right? The academic system is so flawed within itself, right? Just like any system. It's a, for every one good person, yeah, there's three shitty people right behind them. Yep. Oh man. Right. So the arm. So what branch of the military were you a part of? I was part of the United States Navy. You know, proud sailor. Twenty years, four deployments, five different ships. Um, served overseas once in Guam. Happy day to watch all people. I loved it over there. Um, it was a hell of a journey. 27 countries. Um, a lot of injuries, a lot of bad times, a lot of good times, um, a lot of drunken times. <laughs> so everybody listening, you're going to get the honest, you're going to get the honest answers out of me. I'm not going to hold back. I won't tell everything, but I tell you, it was, it was some wild times. And if you saw what I did, you would not. Thank me for my service. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thank you for your service. Not that you're welcome for the good time, man. Taxpayer money. You got it. Go have fun. So, mm-hmm. And I'm paying the taxes too. Wait, even from you're getting, well, oh, that's true. So when you're getting paid from your, like you said, your two week pay stub, you got dental coming out, health, vision, and taxes taken out. Retirement, um, life insurance with the, the service, life insurance that they give you the option for. There's a lot of things that get taken out. You know, so, I mean, I pay taxes when we go to countries. Yeah, we gonna wild out and we gonna have fun. I'm paying taxes. I'm deployed, separated from my family. Fires on the boat. You can't call the fire department. So, we're the firefighters. And I was an engineer. So, some nights you're up for 12, 13 hours down in the engine room trying to fix a pump. And once you finish, it's two in the morning. You got to shower, go to sleep, and be right back up at six for the next day. So, yeah, when we get in for it, that's why you hear the stories of we're, we're having wild sex, we're getting drunk, we're fighting locals because the stress that we go through out there, oh, we owe it to ourselves to have fun. Oh, yeah. Jeez. So, an engineer. Like, I, I'm sorry, not like you're a poet, you know, spoken word, and word. Like, okay, so where did you. You, what 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 age were you when you joined the Navy? I was seventeen. Seventeen. My mom had to sign. Your mom had to sign yeah. you up. Yeah, because I was under the age of eighteen. Ah, so I mean, was that you? That was your only option. You're like, I want Navy. No. So what happened was, and I don't mean to talk ill will my father because you know he's underground, but it's the truth. I was told by a guidance counselor that. If I scored a 1020 on the SAT, I would get a full academic ride for architectural engineering from uh, FAMU, Florida A&M University, historic black, historically black college and university. I scored a 1020, and the papers came through. And I showed my parents, I'm in Indiana, I'm like, yo, like, I got a full ride, you want to pay for nothing? They flat out told me, we're not getting you down there. What? My parents did not want to pay for me to get down there. And I more so fought my dad because... 
my dad was basically cheap to everybody except himself. Yeah. So he was a name veteran. Mm-hmm. And my dad, the only reason he went to the Navy because he was a bad kid. The judge gave him a choice. He was going to the military or the jail. So he was, he kept running the Navy simply because he didn't want to make me get down there. So I didn't want to be like him. So I went to the Air Force. Air Force recruiter was talking good. And I was leaving one day, going to my car. The Navy dude came out and said, I'll give you $10,000 if you sign with me. I was 16 at the time, <laughs> right before I turned 17. $10,000 at that age, I'm thinking I'm set for life. I'm like the guy who just hit the lottery in Illinois. So I'm like, Tenji, you show me 10000 I will take you to my parents now. <laughs> he showed me that. We arranged the meeting. They came to the house the next day, and I signed up. Mom, please sign the paper. The man's giving me money. <laughs> $10,000. Gotta do what I do now. I mean, I don't regret it, but like I said, 17 years old, 10000 that sounds like $10 million. I'm a millionaire. I'm have to work yeah, I'm a millionaire. I ain't got to work no more. Like, they just gave me $10,000. I'm good. And then you get a real job in your 20s, and you're like, shit, I made that much in a year, but I didn't feel that $10,000. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a rude awakening. Wait, rude t- awakening. so you're, you're gifted with words, but you're like, it seems like you're also a gifted engineer. So wh- where did that come about? So it was a job I chose when I went into the Navy. Um, I chose to be a welder and a plumber, so I graduated boot camp. They sent me to school for four months, you know, became a certified welder. Um, flew me out to my first ship, which was in the Persian Gulf at the time. You know, I got all my plumbing cert. Um, yeah, so certified welder, certified plumber, certified firefighter, because you got to learn firefighting skills out there. I'm a certified gas free engineer. So I can, I can hold a job pretty much anywhere, but... That's not my passion. You know, my passion is spoken word and speaking. So this is what I want to do. Um, and that's what I'm doing right now. So, but yeah, I got a lot of sides to me, though. Yeah, sounds like it. Were you still writing? Were you still doing any writing at all while you were at the Gulf, at the Gulf or where you were engineering, where you were plumbing, all this stuff? Were you still writing? So I didn't get back into writing until 2008 because you go into the military. 18 years old, you go on your first deployment, all of your passions and everything, that's like your that I'll put it like this. Before my 19th birthday, I was in Spain, Italy, Bahrain, and I turned 19 in Dubai. You can drink in Dubai at 18. So, I'll put it like this. I woke up on the ship in all my clothes. They carried me back. I was dead, pissy drunk. So, I'm 18. I'm 18. Hit three countries, and on my 19th birthday, I'm in Dubai. So it's like, you don't think about anything else. You're like, I'm traveling the world. I can drink. I'm having fun. I'm seeing this women. I'm seeing this landmark. I don't care about anything else. And that was pretty much my first five years in the Navy. And when I deployed for my third time in six years in 2008, it was a guy out of Dallas, Texas named Rashad Beal. He was also a poet. and He started a poetry night on the ship and he asked me, did you want to come down and perform it? It turned into every Saturday thing, and it was just a huge gathering of people who loved the art, and we would just we would just write our poetry and say it out. It was our way of venting, getting our frustrations, and letting our hair down while we was out there for six months. So, yeah, it was a beautiful thing with 2008, man. Sounds like the it sounds like the ingredients a good writer would need life experience, dude. 
Yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean, do you remember a good amount of it? I hope. <laughs> I re- I remember a lot of it. I actually put a lot of. So I've written ten books, and my second book, Bandages. I wrote about a lot of my deployment stories. I, I remember my deployment stories like I know my deployment stories like the back of my hand. Um, I'm not going. Obviously, I'm not going to go through it all. Cause we'll be on this phone for 24 <laughs> hours. But through 27 countries on five continents, I, man, I got stories for days. It's it's a it's been a wild experience. Like I said, people would not look at us the same. And when I say thank you for your service, they my mom would just tell me. She knows some of the stuff I did. And she was like, that's not my son. Well, when well, you're out there, mom, it's just what we do. So. Oh, man. I mean, and how was, it, how was it coming back home once all that was done? What was that transition like? So, as far as when I finished up my 20s, um, it was just surreal. Because I work, I work on the Marine base now doing marketing. Um create a lot of graphics, um, help out the Marines and sailors. You know, so that last day I served, I came home and I sat on my couch for 15 minutes like, it's really over. Like, I don't have to go. I don't have to go into work tomorrow and wear a uniform or any of that. And it was surreal. And I said, how am I going to celebrate it? And I got up and I went and got me some pizza and went and got a haircut and I came back home and I think I drove, yeah, I drove a beer. And I relaxed and it was amazing. It passed by like that, but I would say it was more good than bad. And I definitely had had some downtime, but it was definitely a lot of fun. I don't regret it one bit. And did you say twenty years service? Yeah, I did twenty years of service. Dude, I'm sorry. I can't even tell how old you are. You're over here. T- I'm, I'm over here thinking you're somewhere close to my age, but now you're here saying I did 20 years service in the military. I've written 10 books. I'm like, God, like either this guy is like, like, ext- like obviously you're, you're hustling like crazy, but damn, dude, I'm an underdeveloped human being compared to you. Like you've experienced so much, dude. Just trying to tap into my talent before I leave the earth one day. So yeah. You know, I, when I do leave, people can find my name on books. They can look on the computer, find my poetry. You can look at the Navy yearbooks, find my, it's crazy, we do have yearbooks from the ship. We call them cruise books. They can look at a cruise book. Hey, that guy, I remember him. Yeah, so. Wait, wait, a cruise yeah, I just book? Thought it well. Yeah, so picture, picture your high school yearbook <clears throat> just on the ship that you are. And after we deploy, after we come back from deployment, we have these cruise books, they have pictures. That they took, you know, and it's just like a class, you know. <laughs> you know how you have your class picture, like the 20 people in class, but we have engineer department, and you have pictures of all the engineers, and half of us are looking grimy and messed up, some of them are smiling. You know, it's, it's a funny experience, because I tell the Navy, tell people, the Navy is a lot like high school. Really? You have your cliques, <laughs> yeah, you have your cliques, you have your lunch period, people go to lunch and sit with the people they're cool with, you got the loners. It, it's a wild experience. Like I've met so many different people in life. My best friend is from Wyoming. And I've been going up there every year since 2019. I never grew up thinking a street kid from East Chicago would have a best friend who grew up on a farm in Wyoming. And it was just funny. I remember on deployment in 05, 
Um, we were actually we were in Dubai again, and we said, "Hey, we're gonna go out of town." So here I am, my long t-shirt, fitted cap, do rag, jeans. He's coming off with some Wranglers and a cowboy hat and a flannel. <laughs> People looking at us like, "Y'all together?" Like, yeah, this is my man. Like, this is my dude. <laughs> and we rode together, hang. Everybody looking like this is the oddest combination ever. But Josh is my guy. That's my brother. So. Yeah, that's just some of the stuff that happens in the Navy. Like, you just click with people. And like, I, like I said, I just visited him. I visited him every year since 2019. I just came from up there in, in May when his oldest daughter, my niece, turned 18. So, yeah, it, it's the military is a crazy and strange bunch. But a lot of us, we become like family to each other. Dude, y'all sound like the odd couple, you and Josh. I want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he took me to Yellowstone too. It was, it was a crazy experience up there. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> oh man, well that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah, you always hear about like the bonds that people make in the yeah. armed forces. You know, it's deeper than anything else. I don't know. Like, you sounds like you had a you know a good experience. You said more good than bad. So I'm I'm really glad to hear that, man. Because like he's like I don't know. Like, did you have any like struggle with 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 anxiety or anything like that post? Like a lot of a lot of vets talk about PTSD. I don't know if that's too much to ask, but like as a, as an artist, like, uh, like did that come up for you? I'm an open book. So the hardest part, the hardest point of my military career was May 25th, 2016. I was on my last deployment, um, and I was older than 31 at the time, so. A couple of me and the older guys, we would get together twice a week and like we would meet in the room, just us, vent out our frustrations and just talk as men. And it was a young guy named Connor Allen McQuaid, 19 year old, born in Utah, uh, raised half there, half in Texas. He became like a little brother to me. And May 25th, 2016, got up, normal day. It was actually Memorial Day weekend out there, so we're more relaxed. You know, I'm on the computer checking email, and I hear a man down in the armory. The armory is where the gun's at. So the first thing I'm thinking, who did, who, who trying to play with guns, take a pick for the gram, shot themselves in the foot? Because I, I've known two idiots who shot themselves in the foot, you know, <laughs> um, trying to play around with the pistol. So I'm thinking, okay, that's nothing. And then I hear River City. When you hear River City on a Navy ship, that means all communications going on and off the ship are cut. So right there, I knew somebody's dead. Somebody's dead or somebody's severely hurt. And come to find out, he shot himself. And he left a note saying me and another guy, he felt were the only ones that cared for him. And it broke my heart. It broke my spirit. It broke my soul. Uh, I met this guy's parents when they came back. I had his dog tag still. That was an incident that will never leave me. Um, it forever stings. But uh, I'm actually glad you asked that because it gives me a chance to talk about it, get it out. Um, I did have PTSD. I do have PTSD. You know, it's not it's not in the way a lot of people think. You know, a lot of people think, you know, you get PTSD in the military, you're homeless, you're crazy, you're running to a building, burning down. A lot of the PTSD is internal. That's why I've been going to therapy for seven years. Uh, I still go to therapy. You know, just to make sure that I can keep my head clear because, um, besides him, I deal with another suicide and bomb. Mm. And the bad thing about that one, uh, rest in peace, my guy Walt. Um, the last thing me and Walt did was eat dinner together. We were in China. 
we were eating, he was eating steak, I was eating sea urchin, crazy. <laughs> and we got back, uh, we had the Christmas break, you know, everybody had, you know, a couple weeks off vacation. Came back to the boat, January 7th, 2013. Get there in the morning, they say, hey, man, you, uh, you got to go get your blood drawn at the hospital. I know, Biggie. Go to the hospital, get my blood drawn, and my phone's blowing up saying, don't come back to the ship. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Come to find out, won't shot itself. So, definitely two instances in my life that definitely changed me. And, you know, just some, you know, it's just something you got to deal with. You know, you don't want to deal with it, but, you know, unfortunately, it's part of the territory. Suicide is real. You know, we have real feelings. We go through real stuff. I've been through a divorce. Um, I lost mm-hmm. all my grandmothers on active duty. My dad died while I was out to sea in 2018. Um, I lost my sister, Michelle, last year, 2021. Oh, so lost my best friend. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You know, I lost my best friend. And so, you know, we're human too. You know, we go through it. But like anything, you know, you, you get a good support system around you and you eventually bounce back and you keep going. Yeah. And you have to talk about it. You have you to do. talk about it, man. Did you see the that uh, the UFC fighter, that blonde guy? And even some other there's, yeah. there's, there's another guy who came out like who's speaking about it during his win app after his win, too. But just talking about how he lost a friend also to suicide. He, that, and as men, people in general need to talk more, but like men, we're not taught to talk, you know, openly. True. Yeah, we're taught to internalize our feelings. And that, that's something I'm glad that I've grown out of because I also grew up like that. My dad, he was the, he was the tough guy, you know, like, hey, 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 suck it up, suck it up. You all right, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember when I broke my wrist in the fifth grade. Actually, I, I a better one. Um, 16, I was playing at the rec center. And my friend accidentally elbowed me, busted my eye open, you know, I still got the scar. And I'm in there with the director of the rec center, you know, with a bang over my eye, and I hear him on speakerphone, was he there, was he acting up? Oh, he's dude, they just told you I was playing basketball. Like, <laughs> he's thinking I'm off in a fight, you know, I've been <laughs> And, you know, I'm like, yo, like, that. I got to go to the hospital and get it stitched up. Nope. Put some aloe on it, patch it up, you be good. I was like, wow, but, yeah. I definitely grew out of that mindset. So. Yeah, and like you're, and like, to sh- like to show some empathy to your dad, you know, rest in peace. You know, like I can only imagine what kind of world he grew up in. You know, that made him so hard. You know what I mean? Well, I, yeah, I, and I understand because you know, um, my dad had seven sisters and a brother. Mm. You know, my uncle he passed. You know, he passed on that too. But I remember, you know, my dad, his dad, my grandfather, he died when he was twelve years old. So it's like when you're twelve. And, you know, it's just you, your brother, and your sisters, and your mom. You kind of inadvertently, you, him and my uncle became the men of the house. Mm-hmm. So that's where my dad went to the streets a lot, you know, hustling and trying to get money. He wasn't doing it because he was a bad kid. He was doing it because, yo, my dad's gone. There's nine of us in this house, and we're trying to make it. So I get where he got that you have to be tough mentality. So I don't knock him for it at yeah. all. You got to remember that kind of stuff. Like my mom, she immigrated here from El Salvador. And sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. growing up, I remember like she just she wasn't like she was good at nurturing, but she wasn't that, you know, she she didn't know what a soft hand was. You know what I mean? Like when it came to nurturing a child. But then like you have to, you have mm-hmm. to like 
sit back and or take a step back and just look at where they came from. Like, I don't know. I see my grandmother, dude. Dude, my grandmother is like a rough rock of a woman, of a Salvadoran woman, dude. She's so grumpy and grouchy, but... I mean, she lived through the Salvadorian Civil War, dude. So I'm just like, fuck, no wonder you're yeah. grouchy. Be grumpy, Grandma. But uh, exactly. But I'm glad that at least at least our generation, right, we have a chance to to talk to like, I don't even know if it's called being soft because they always say, you know, be hard, you know, like be a man, whatever. But it's like it takes more strength to open up and be honest than to shut yourself away. Right? Uh, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. It takes strength to shift period, because I tell people, it's okay. The best thing to do is to unlearn what you learn. Mm. Because a lot of stuff that you learn isn't going to be compatible when you're grown. It's not going to be compatible in the world we're living in. You know, and I, all my ne- I got my nephews and my nieces. I always tell them I love them because I didn't hear that growing up in my household, not from my father. My mother said it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and my uncle would say it, and that was like, well, my uncle said to my dad, though, you know, that I realized my uncle had two daughters. So he realized the power in the world, because especially with girls, they need to hear that. And, you know, they didn't hear that growing up. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always tell my nephews and nieces, hey, I love you. you know, I hope y'all know that, you know, that I tell my family that, you know, and I just, I'm glad that I'm one of the people who shifted that narrative that I don't have to yell at you, I don't have to berate you, I ain't got to bring you, I ain't got to hit you with. I mean, I've got people with hangers, phones, whatever you name it. You know, old school grandparents, everything. I'm glad I don't got to be like that. So definitely changing a changing of the guard. Yeah, you ever hear of the term cycle breaker? Yes. One of my definitely. Yeah. Like it, that's what it sounds like. What you are, man, like a cycle breaker. You know, just saying, nah, I'm not going to continue doing this. We're done. We're exactly. done. We're not going for that. It's a new day and age. Oh man. Okay. So, so the books, like what? I mean, were the books just another chance? Was that just another chance for you to write? That the was- books were an accident. Oh. So, when I was overseas in Guam, my last, uh, I'd say probably my last nine months, I was. They took me off the ship to fill another billet. They needed a safety guy. I had the certification. So I basically had to go watch the motorcycle riders, you know, for my people who ride motorcycles, you know, set up the safety courses, make sure they go through the class on it. So I'm sitting in this office every day. Better working hours, but I'm bored. And April is National Poetry Month. And I've seen this concept like you can write 30 poems in 30 days, or you can write 1,600 words a day and make a $50,000. 50,000 word book. So I said, well, I'll write a short story. And I wrote it. And I was like, okay, I did it. Fine. <laughs> and I told a friend when I got back that next year, 2014, he said, hey, I got a publishing friend. He just started his company. And I said, I don't need like, dude, I'm going to set y'all up. I said, okay. So we met, you know, we talked, you know, they had a lawyer there or whatever. Gave me a couple weeks. I said, okay. And we had the writer's block. And I was like, wow, I got my own copy of my book in my hand. And I sold 33 copies. And I was proud. Yes, I was sir. Like, yeah, I got, a, I got a book out. I said, I'm cool. Now, you know, I got a book. Somebody can see it. <laughs> and, and then I was like, I was like, I want to write another one just 
And so I wrote bandages and we put that out and I'll never forget the day my publisher called me. He said, Hey man, you just went number one on Amazon. I said, You're lying. And he, he screenshot it and sent me the picture. I was like, Yo And I was like, it was an addiction. And I actually put poetry to the side for a minute. I was like, Yeah, I'm right, I'm right. <laughs> and now I have ten books out. Um, available on my website, JoeMaxSpeaks.com, and I have an 11th book coming out on Veterans Day, and it's titled Mentally Discharged. It's a mental health book that um, depicts all of the mental health battles in the military and ones that I personally went through while in. So, to be number 11 in November, the 11th month, the 11th day, number 11. Damn, congratulations, dude. I appreciate it, man. Damn, wow, that's dope, man. Okay, so you have the you're you're a published author, you have the you have your spoken word poetry, and you're traveling all across the country with that. You you mentioned Austin earlier. I haven't been there, but I've been hearing magical things about Austin being like like you said, an artistic mecca. Yeah, it, it is. So they host South by Southwest, like one of the largest, um, one of the largest musical festivals every year. And so they have this huge poetry showcase and I hit the I hit the organizers and say, Hey, is there any more room? I'll be coming from San Diego. They said, You buy a ticket, we'll put you in the showcase both nights. I said, Well, let's do it. So no, this one isn't a paid one, but I understand the power of certain places. I'm going to Austin in one of the largest showcases in the country. Somebody sees me there is gonna lead to more booking. You know, I've, I've done Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I've done Burlington, Vermont. I had three nights in Seattle, Portland, Headline, Vegas, Jacksonville, Florida. So I've been around. So it's like, it's going to be huge. And Definitely what, a huge opportunity. And were, were all those gigs just, you met someone and it just took you to the next one? Like piggyback into the next, into the next, to the next? Uh, what started the major gig was I went to Las Vegas. In 2018, they had a Christmas Eve showcase, and my mom stays in Vegas, and my aunt, and my mom and my aunt. So I said, "Well, I'll drive up and get in this showcase on Christmas Eve." It had to been about 15 people in there, but I just did my thing. And the next thing you know, the right person saw me. Then when I came back to San Diego, I did one of my friends' events. Then I got the call from Seattle. Hey, we got this event two nights, and you come. Yeah, I come headline it. It gets canceled because of a snowstorm. And so the next thing I know, they bring it back in March. Hey, it's three nights. We're, we're going to fly you back up. Okay, cool. Then the next one, yo, I'm in Portland. Then the next one, yo, I'm in Jacksonville. Then I reconnect with Josh. He's like, yo, come to Wyoming for a few days to relax. Then go to Wyoming. Then slam season starts, and I win San Diego slam. So now I'm representing San Diego in the world slam. Then I ended up finished top 25 in the world. And it was just like, from there, it was just a ricochet effect. So I was like, man. What was that world tournament like? I mean, I don't even know what spoken word, what that world is in itself. Like, what would, like, explain, like, take, walk me through that experience of the world tournament. So the individual world poetry slam, it takes the top 80 poets in the world. So you have, you have poetry slam eight. It's basically, um, it's basically a certification. Kind of picture a LLC for a business. Mm. 
poetry venues that are under PSI, those are the certified venues for the world slam. So at each of these in whatever state, and a lot of them in the Midwest and South, in the East Coast, a lot of them, you go through these tournaments against other poets. And when you win, you get the right opportunity to represent whatever venue or city you're in at the World Slam. And it's 55 um, national venues. You have 14 international. And then you have 11 random slots to whoever's going to pay to get in. So 11 people anywhere in the world, they're the first to pay. After all the other slots are taken in, they're in. And when you get there, it's not like roses are red, violets are blue. Everybody is good. You may have five or six that you say, why are you here? Why did you pay your money to come? But in my first round bout, five of us finished in the top 25. Five of us. From the RJ Wright finished fourth. My first on. round bout. It was the first night. I finished 24th. Uh, I can't remember the girl's name. She finished 23rd. Coco Flo, she finished 14th in the world. RJ Wright finished number four. Breeze ended up finished tied for number one. So that just shows you the level of competition right there. If five of us in the top 25 were in one round, it was brutal. It was brutal. You had to bring your A-plus game with every piece, every one of them. People were out for blood with their with their work that day. Jeez. And people were and people were just like they like what, what like their work like I can't even imagine like I go like you know where where you met me dude like I'm singing musical numbers and shit like I I I work I you know work with like music writers and whatnot but I can't even imagine what it's like to be a poet and just to be surrounded with because I'm I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping it's not like a dog eat dog world or the poetry world but I can only imagine like how much that would have fed your soul just to be surrounded with all that collective power. It, it really did. Like, just the, the energy was nuts. Like, you're watching poets from other cities. They're coming in like they're NBA teams. Like, this guy is coming in. It's like 20 people coming just to see him or her. And it's like, wow. Like, this is, this is, they're really about that life. So it was, uh, it was a great experience. Um, it really made me up my game. You know, I was already up here, but hearing that, like, you had to take it to the next level. So, um, definitely a great experience. We're actually, um, in what we call slam season now. I'll be in the final eight San Diego Gladiator Slam this coming Monday. Thousand dollars on the line. So from there, it's just on to the next venue and on to the next slam competition. Man, dude, I had no idea this was going on in the world. Yeah, slam is huge. Slam is is a huge thing. So, so where was the world tournament? Where was that held? Uh, in 2019, it was held in San Diego. So I got lucky; I didn't have to go anywhere. I I could relax at the house, be comfortable. The next year was Dallas, but they shut it down because of COVID. <clears throat> and so, yeah. So for the last two years. Uh, it's been shut down. 2022, they're kind of like bringing everything back up. And 2023 is going to be the next official world tournament. Because they wanted every, I know the organizer for it, he want everybody to get their creative juices back on, get used to the tournament formats and everything, so that next year, we can just go all out. 
So what's what's the life of a of a, of, a, of a poet in this circuit? Like y'all go to these tournaments, you know, you do your best, you win, you don't, whatever. But when you're not competing in these tournaments, are are all of you just like yourself writing books and 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 poetry on the side, just always writing and creating material? I suppose. So yeah, because you're all you never know when your next call is going to be, mm-hmm. what show is going to book you, who's going to call you. So I always. I always try to stay fresh, you know, with my material. And then, you know, one night you might end up like me. Hey, Tulsa, Oklahoma, three nights from Black Wall Street. We need you for all three nights. Okay, cool. Well, I know I got to I gotta be prepared. And then it's just hectic because you got to fly in. You got to go to the hotel. You got to go to the venue. You got to meet with people. You got to do sound check. Then, okay, how am I getting here? Am I Ubering? Are you picking me up? You got to eat. You got to find leisure time, you know. And it's just like, by the end of the night, like, I'll just give you an example. By the end of that first night, that Friday, I was dead dog tired. I was just like, you know what? Thank God Saturday night show is on a Saturday night. That way I can relax. I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to walk around, talk to downtown, let me get something to eat. Because then when you go to the venue, it's just go, 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 go until the show's over. Whoa. Yeah. What a life, man. What a life. And so what's the because I know I saw on your website uh, you've created uh, these short film type of uh, material for like Joker and whatnot, where you're like you're you're acting uh, and also just performing yeah. your 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 material. I mean, is that something you yeah. want to do as well? Do you like is performing not just spoken word, but just acting? Is that something in your bag? Yeah, I definitely want to get that. I definitely want to get into acting. Um, I'm going to admit something. I'm a Hallmark junkie. Um, I know <laughs> tough guy with tattoos. I love Hallmark. I always tweet him. So if Hallmark's watching, um, yes, I'm advertised for a movie. <laughs> so, and so along with the acting, it gives a better visual for spoken words. So that Black Joker piece, I filmed that four days after my sister died and four days after I buried my best friend. So in making a trauma piece, I was also dealing with trauma. So like some of that was acting, but my emotions were on 10,000. But it gave the audience a visual, you know, with the words. And it makes them look at you in a different light because they can see your expression and not just hear the words. So uh, acting is something I definitely want to get into. We're definitely planning some more short, uh, short video spoken word films as well. Oh, dude, that's rad. Um, God, I'm so sorry again to hear about your friend and your sister. Like, but thank God for art, though, right? Like, it sounds like you coped and just threw yourself into your. How long did it take to film Joker? Uh, we filmed that in about three hours. <laughs> what? You know? Three hours? Like, it's so, not, I know it's not a very long uh, video, but like, I don't know. There's a, there's a cut. It's not a single take. I don't think I have to rewatch it maybe to see, but like, three hours? It looks clean. You no, know, we we did we did about and yeah, that's my director, uh, Derek Chatel. Um, he's from Chicago, so you know we grew up real close to each other. So it took about five takes, just you know, with the word, and then you get into the dress changes, and then you know you're rehearsing the script, and you do your walkthroughs and everything. So like, it could be a long day, but when you got somebody like Derek who's good at what he does, and when I'm good at what I do, you know, we find a way to okay, this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna do. All right, let's hit it from this angle. Let's hit it from this camera angle. Let's do it over again. 
And, you know, a three-hour shoot, you know, that's kind of good because, I mean, I've been, I have, I had one show where it was literally nine in the, 12 o'clock noon, 4.30 ends rehearsal. We have to be back at six. So you got to go get something to eat. I go back to the hotel, shower. I sleep for maybe 15 minutes. Then you get up and you're headed right back. I was just like dead dog tired. So one of those rehearsals where it's like, find your light. All right. Can you speak into the mic? Give us a sound check. Please hold. Mm-hmm. Please hold. They're just taking notes. Yeah. Uh, Especially when it's part of a theater. Man, it's crazy. <laughs> Speaking of the, like, what got you? What got you into uh, into the uh, the event that I saw you at? That where we met. What got you there? I found it on Instagram and saw it as another avenue to get my name out there. Dude, <laughs> so nice. I just DM'd. I just DM'd and say, "Yo, um, can I get in this?" He's like, "Sure." And my boy, my brother Jay Hall, he was a Marine. He was with me, so he's like, "Yeah, I go with you." We went up there, you know, got got a couple brews, ate some sushi, went in there, gave my thing, and drove back to San Diego. You went. It's another opportunity, dude. In a random little theater in Anaheim, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you ever do theater, like a play? Oh yeah, I did a I did a drama club from junior high and high school, so. Being on stage, I'm comfortable with it. Oh, dude, very nice. Like I know, I know, I know. San Diego has Moonlight Theater, but they do a lot of musical theaters. But does does San Diego have a, a, a lively theater community? Yeah, it's a pretty it's a lively thing here. Um, with San Diego, they like to focus more on local producers. So you know, you might catch a you might catch a producer from L.A. or out of state. You know, every blue moon. But they really like to highlight the local producers who are trying to get out there, like Gil Sotu. Um, he's probably one of the most famous playwrights in this city. So they like to focus on the local talent. And, you know, that, it's a good thing. You know, they don't hold back from the national, but they want to try to get people in San Diego noticed outside of San Diego. What, what was that playwright's name you mentioned? Gil Sotu. G-I-L-L-S-O-T-U. He's also a poet. No way, right on. Have you ever thought about writing, uh, being a playwright? Nah, that, that's not my, my lane. I don't do script writing. I got a friend who does it, and once he told me that one script page he was one minute in the movie, uh, I'm good, because I can just imagine Lord of the Rings is three hours. You're telling me 180 page script? Nah, I'm not writing that. I stick with the portion. You do script writing. You know, oh, I appreciate you, though. Fair enough, dude. Fair enough. Wow, man. So what's what's... Now what's next? But like, what's got you going right now? Like, you have your your poetry and you the eleventh book coming out. Is there anything else that's got you, that's got you working also playing, if you will? Man, just you know, just retired and about to do something different. You know, uh, I'm taking the last two months of the year off. You know, I work marketing on the Marine base, like I told you. And you know, I'm gonna take the last two months off, November, December, just travel. And, you know, in 2023, I'm just going all in. I'm going to start my LLC, Joe Max Speak, you know, see if we can get to the five, six-figure level of speaking. Because I want to speak on the military experience, the PTSD, and the arts in general. So I'm just going. I'm going for mine. I've always been a person where I don't need much, you know. I got a roof over my head. I got cars. I got clothes. I got money in the bank. Good people in my corner. 
you know, if I do happen to get rich, you know, thank God that, you know, I'm happy where I'm at. Like, I'm happy. As long as I'm progressing, as long as I can see people smiling, I- I'm good. Beautiful, brother. I love that. It's beautiful. Oh, man. All right. Well, I think it's a good place to uh, get to uh, one of my favorite parts of the podcast. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's Have you ever heard of Inside the Actor Studio? Um, no. Nah. No? All right. No, no worries. Uh, old show back in the day on Bravo uh, with James Lipton. It was a class that they would have, a master's class at Pace University, uh, where James Lipton would interview actors, actresses uh, in front of a, a classroom full of students. And they would just talk about, you know, their, just how we were talking about our, about your career, about who you are, right? And at the end, he has a set of 10 questions that he has, uh, that he asks the guest. So I, I, I think they're a great way to get to know someone. <clears throat> Nothing too crazy oh. at all, I can assure you. Uh, but yeah, are you ready? Are you ready for it, my friend? I am ready for it. All right, let's do it. Here we go then. Here we are. First question is, and this will be good. You're a poet. This will be a good one. What is your favorite word? Fuck. I'm a sailor, man. We, we, I'm a sailor. We say fuck at least 50 times a day. <laughs> oh, man. You're, I'm, I'm, okay. You're going to see another question. This will be interesting. Next, next question is, what is your least favorite word? Can't. Mm. Nice. What turns you on? What makes you happy? Stage lights. Hmm. Once the stage lights comes on, I'm in a different world. I'm free. What turns you off? What makes you unhappy? People who don't appreciate the people who get things going. I'll I'll say this example. I can tell a lot about your character by the way you treat the janitor. When I go to the gym, the trainer's not the most important person, not the register, the janitor. He's the one who gives me the presentation. If it's clean, he makes me want to work out. The janitor is the most important, so character is the biggest thing for me. Next question. What sound or noise do you love? (sighs) Unwrapping a carne asada burrito. (laughs) When you hear the rapper sound and you just see that burrito, you're like, yes, I'm a burrito connoisseur. I I eat burritos at least once every two weeks. (laughs) Dig it. (laughs) What sound or noise do you hate? Jets. Mm. All right. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. (laughs) Dig it. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? An actual teacher. Hmm. Nice. What profession would you not like to do? Um, I would not like to do plumbing again. I did this <laughs> shit for 20 years. I'm not playing with anybody's shit or piss anymore. <laughs> Never again. Right on. Uh, and final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You've just started. 
because if I know I'm gonna live for eternity, and what I did on Earth just say you've just started. Next phase, gotcha. And keep telling me that over and over and over. I'm gonna die, come back, die, come back. Okay, cool. What's the next thing you want me to do? Love it. Well, we did it. We did it, Joe. We got to the end of the podcast. Yes, uh, now this is the time for you to please. You've been you've been doing a wonderful job letting us know of all your work. But now let the people know any current work coming up, any appearances. This is your time, sir. All right. So, like I said earlier, I'll be in Austin, Texas, August nineteenth and the twentieth. Two night showcase. Friday night, the historic Victory Grill, and the second night at the Belmont on famous Sixth Street, um, Idaho. Falls. I'll be in the Idaho Falls Poetry Slam. Sell twice a year. Idaho Falls is their big major thing. So I'll be up there in October. Um, my 11th book, um, Mentally Discharged, comes out on 11 11. That's November 11th, Veterans Day. So go out and support that. You can find me on Twitter at the artist, the artist Joe Mac. You can find me on IG at Artist Joe Mac. Hit my website, JoeMacSpeaks.com. Order the books. Book me to come to your city. Course is not going to be free, but you know I can work with you depending on your event. So um, hit me up. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you for the interview, and those are my shameless plugs. And shout out to Brenda Joshua, best teacher on earth. She's the reason I'm here. Shout out to all the teachers. Um, we're grateful for you, even though you're grossly underpaid. We need you, Florida. Get your shit together, America. Get your shit together, and that's probably all I got to say. Joe Mack. I love it. Thank you, man. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. That was episode 56 of the Why the F Not podcast. Look at that. Ooh, this is butter now. It's butter. We're just, we're just getting buttered now. It's all smooth. But that was a Joe Mack, the artist Joe Mack. All of his links are going to be in the description below for his 11th book coming out on 11-11 Veterans Day. All of his performance dates will be below as well. Uh, don't forget also, hey, just Google Stephen Brogan Cortez. You know, just, just, just go search out what comes up. You know, nothing dirty will come up. I don't think so. Go on the YouTubes. You know, even the YouTubes. Why not? And don't forget, you're enough. You're more than enough. It's pretty incredible how enough you are. Okay, bye.